Love is fuel, is spark, an engine, an impetus that urges, a sinew that binds one to the other. This is Peggy Priestley. She's a poet and writer living in California, and she's talking about our favorite topic. A love that saw no boundaries, even as they were to cross territory. This is a story about finding love and keeping love in the worst possible circumstances. A story of bonds and friendships in a world that sees you as less than human. It's a story from a long time ago, but with a timeless message. As it was amidst the terrors of their extraordinary self-emancipation. Is there not hope then, even for all of us? I'm Tay Diggs, and this is You Had Me at Hello, the show where everyday people share their extraordinary stories of how they met and fell in love, and sometimes how things later fell apart. Love, its highs and lows, mess and drama, awkwardness and laughs. Come with us as we celebrate it all. In this episode, a group of enslaved fugitives find everything they need in one another and in a place they could finally call home, a place of true sanctuary. This is The House of Love. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's the mid-1840s, and slavery is legal in America. Black people across the country are sold off like property on a daily basis. Lewis Hayden, a young man with a short fade and brown skin, is enslaved in Kentucky. Hayden is being bought and sold and purchased multiple times. That's Kelly Carter Jackson, a historian and professor of Africana Studies in Massachusetts. His mother was mixed race. He said that his mother was of Native American, Black, and European descent. His father was also enslaved. It's hard to know for sure, but we think Lewis was only in his 20s, and he had already experienced a massive loss. Hayden was suffering from enormous grief. He had just lost his wife and his son, not to death, but to the auction block. The auction block, a place where mothers were separated from children, husbands from wives, and sold to the highest bidder. 
slavery separated about one third of all black families. They could sort of experience what it meant to lose a loved one through sale or purchase. During this time of emotional turmoil, something special happens. Lewis meets someone in Kentucky who is going to change his life forever, Harriet. She has a really beautiful complexion, very smooth skin, um, large eyes, full lips, a white nose. She's very much a black woman. You can tell that she's also experienced a lot of things. Just like Lewis, Harriet knows what it means to grieve someone who's been taken away from you. They had both suffered a lot of violence and trauma and separation because of slavery. Harriet had also been separated from her own partner at the auction block. She was now alone with their two-year-old son, Joseph. We can't be sure how Lewis and Harriet first met, but they lived close to each other. I like to think that they probably found comfort in one another and that, you know, her son quickly became Lewis's son. He um, adopts her son, takes her son on his, as his own. Lewis Hayden fell deeply in love and this new family unit was powerful. And so I think about those bonds of kinship that are being formed uh, at really pivotal moments in their life. It's a, it's a story of love, but it's also a story of grief and a story of comfort that you can find in another person. Both Harriet and Lewis knew what it meant to love and to lose someone. So to be able to find love again at a time like this, that felt like a miracle. They are meeting and sort of starting their lives together as much as they possibly can during the time that they're married and enslaved. And when I say married, I should be clear, they're not legally married. So there is no um, legal institution for marriage for enslaved people. But they were coupled, put it that way, and they saw themselves as married to one another. In Kentucky, enslaved people could work outside of their plantation if they were deemed useful enough. Lewis was working in a local hotel as a waiter, but it's not like he was on any kind of salary. That money went to his owner. And that hotel experience proves to be really um, instrumental for their marriage because it's during that job that he's able to like garner extra wages through tips and things of that nature and get extra insight about like conversations that are being had in this hotel. At this hotel, through whispers behind closed doors, Lewis learns about the abolitionist movement. People, both black and white, who were willing to risk everything to help others escape slavery. You know, there's a moment in Lewis Hayden's life where he's sort of newly married to Harriet or newly coupled with Harriet. They have a two-year-old son. Um, and basically, an abolitionist approaches him and says, hey, do you want to run away? You know, we can get you out of Kentucky. And he refuses. And he basically says, I will never leave my wife. I will never leave my child. Because he knows what that experience was to have lost a son and a wife. And so he is emphatic about maintaining his relationship with his wife and son. Lewis can't imagine a life without Harriet, and he doesn't want to. It's not until Joseph becomes about seven years old that he starts to really think about, okay, maybe now this is the time to go. And that's because at seven years old, it starts to become even harder for Lewis and Harriet to protect Joseph. 
There are things that Joseph would have been capable of as a child laborer. And so he could have been put in the field. He could have been used somewhere in the home. But at that age, he also was vulnerable to the auction block. Lewis and Harriet are determined not to let that happen. They are dead set on staying together. There's such an allegiance to one another. I think they really saw each other as having a partnership. You see all throughout their marriage, they are thick as thieves. They stay together even in times when they're you know, apart from one another. They are still always working as one. But they knew that sticking together would be near impossible if they stayed in Kentucky. And it's at that point that Lewis is presented with another chance, a ticket out of the South that would include Harriet and Joseph in the shape of a white man called Calvin Fairbanks. Calvin Fairbanks pretty much approaches the Haydens and says, hey, I can help you get to freedom. I can help you get out of Kentucky. And so they make this plan to leave and they leave very strategically. It's the dead of night. Lewis sneaks out of his master's home to meet Harriet. Harriet's cradling Joseph, and they silently make their way to a window in their own master's home. Calvin Fairbanks is waiting outside with two horses and a carriage. Lewis Hayden takes Joseph from the window and sort of carries him down to the carriage. And then he gets Harriet, helps her out of the window and carries her down. And they hide in the back of this carriage. Calvin Fairbanks covers the Haydens in a large blanket. The darkness of the night has become pitch black. They hold their breath. The two horses set off and the journey begins. And this is treacherous, a treacherous journey because all along the South, there are checkpoints in which there were always inspections. There was constant patrol, constant policing for fugitives at every turn. You never quite knew who you could trust. And all along the way, the Haydens hold each other tightly in Mr. Fairbanks' horse carriage. They needed one another. Their love for each other was gonna get them through this journey. They leaned on one another, and that gave them both hope. I think that these are moments in which you constantly had to have hope, hope that surmounted your fear. Otherwise, you were never ever gonna make it to where you hoped to be, to where you wanted to be. And they do make it, first to Ohio, a free state. But the Haydens keep going, moving from horse carriages to trains and back to more horse carriages. Finally, Lewis, Harriet, and Joseph make it across the border to Canada, where the Haydens can finally breathe a sigh of relief. And that's only because Canada had laws that basically said, once you get here, slave catchers are not allowed to pursue you. Across the U.S., even in parts where slavery might not have been practiced, it was still common for slave catchers to find innocent Black folk and bring them back to their masters. And this could have been where our story ends. 
the Haydens risked everything to make it to Canada. They could have started a new, quiet life without the fear of being forced back into slavery ever again. But that's not who this couple are. They aren't built to live a quiet life. So the Haydens always had a commitment to helping other people get to freedom. They really wanted to make sure that as many people as possible could experience what they experienced. And so they were deeply invested in the abolitionist movement. They owed their lives to the abolitionist movement. Had it not been for Fairbanks, you know, they would never have gotten freedom. And so they feel in some ways indebted. So Lewis and Harriet make a dangerous decision. They make a U-turn and smuggle themselves and Joseph across the border and back into the United States. I think a huge part of their leaving Canada is this moment where they realize we have to also be willing to put ourselves on the line and help as many people as we can. Lewis and Harriet are a couple who weren't just involved in protecting their son. They also wanted to protect as many Black people as they could from a lifetime of slavery. Weeks later and over 700 miles, the Haydens find themselves in Beacon Hill. Nowadays, Beacon Hill is one of the most expensive places to live in Boston. But back then... In the 19th century, you had a lot of Black working-class families that were free or fugitives and that were carving out spaces for themselves and that they were working to protect not just their own livelihood, but the livelihood of everyone in their community. Massachusetts was the first state to legalize slavery, but also became one of the first states to abolish it. And Boston, in particular, became a hub for abolitionists. It was a safe space for families like the Haydens, a place where they could welcome other Black folks who had escaped slavery with open arms and love. And this is where they set up shop. This is where they did all of their most intimate work for the abolitionist movement. In Boston, the Haydens find a house that feels perfect for their mission. They hid enslaved people and fugitive slaves in their attic and also in their basement. And these were safe spaces in which you would not just go to like find shelter, but that you would go to find safety in order to either stay in Boston or to continue your track further north. Step inside the Hayden's home, or as we like to call it, the house of love. It's a beautiful brownstone that has maybe four or five floors, but it's a brick brownstone, sort of like a a red terracotta colored brownstone with beautiful forest green shutters on each side of every window for every level of the home. The Haydens decide that their new home in Boston would provide safety, shelter, and love to anyone who needed it. Lewis and Harriet Hayden had what people might call the gift of hospitality. So everyone could come to their home and find shelter and find food and find clothing 
coats, blankets, a, a place to hide. Whatever they needed, they could get supplied in that space, which means that Harriet and probably a team of other people working with her were probably constantly cooking. There was constantly something on the fire. Fires were constantly running. The house was always busy and bustling. There were always people in the house. The smell of fried chicken and sweet potato pie, the noise of children laughing and playing, sisters braiding one another's hair. In the midst of such trauma, this was a home filled with love. So the home was very much the heart of Beacon Hill, the heart of the community. And in this community, other couples who were also bonded by the desire for a new life, they also found their way to the house of love. Couples with their own stories of hurt and love to tell. But it could not guarantee safety from the outside world that always threatened to break in. More on that after the break. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back. Today, we're in the House of Love, a place of warmth and community against the face of oppression. In Beacon Hill, Boston, families and couples come and go in the Hayden's home. Couples like the Crafts. William and Ellen Craft were both born into the height of American slavery in the 1820s. This is Barbara McCaskill, a professor of English in Georgia. Ellen's father was a wealthy planter as well as a lawyer in the town of Clinton. And her mother was enslaved by him. Her mother's name was Mariah. It was pretty much an open secret, something very taboo and yet hardly ever questioned. In the mid-1800s, there are some slave masters who have children with the women they enslaved. Ellen was born into a mixed-race household where the African-American children were enslaved and were not publicly acknowledged by their fathers. A very tense situation. You may have heard of the term house slave before. Enslavers called them servants because they were in charge of housework like cooking and cleaning. But this didn't mean they were free to leave. And like Ellen, it was often only because of their light complexion that they lived in slightly better conditions. Ellen was pretty. Ellen was clever. I think that throughout her life, 
people observed that. As quiet as she may have been at times, there was a sharpness about her. She was clearly an observant person, taking everything in, very thoughtful. And then there was William Kraft, a man of many skills. He was a carpenter who could repair furniture or build new things from scratch. His labor was in high demand. So he was leased out or hired out by his owner, meaning he was basically loaned to whoever needed him, other planters, other families, white families living in and around Macon, Georgia. And he was allowed to move about on his own. One of the families William worked for was Ellen's, a.k.a. the Collins household. And sure enough, William and Ellen notice each other. It very likely happened perhaps in the kitchen where Ellen was going about doing errands or chores for her mistress, her sister, her half-sister, ironically. Or I would like to think that they might have met outside of the grounds of the Collins house when Ellen was running an errand for her mistress or probably more likely accompanying her mistress Ellen and William were both people who weren't allowed to have their own voices. They went where they were told to go. That didn't stop them from finding a little crush along the way. She very likely might have caught William's eye and vice versa. They might have been able to exchange a few words. William might have inquired about who she was and where she lived. I would like to believe that he probably came round the Collins house looking for work, (laughs) but really looking for Ellen. (laughs) Over time, William returned again and again to the Collins household. William and Ellen's love grew deeper and deeper, but also in secret. How do you have privacy? How do you have intimacy within a household where you are constantly surveilled and constantly policed? Uh, the moments are, are, are not prolonged, quick. The small moments, holding hands, a kiss on the cheek, a delicate hug, They only happen with the help of other Black folks who are also working on the Collins plantation. There's a community of other enslaved people who recognize that they are falling in love and who are doing what they can to create opportunities, to create spaces for them to come together and to have moments of intimacy, whether it's in a kitchen, everyone gets out so that the two can be alone and talk, whether it's distracting the enslavers so the two can be alone. And if they really want to be alone, it can never happen in the daytime. These two lovebirds can only get some quiet time when the night falls and the rest of the Collins household are sleeping. William would come and see Ellen at night and get back in the morning and not have a lot of sleep. That is what enslaved people did when we fell in love. You can just picture these two quietly swaying in each other's arms, gazing up at the stars and imagining a better life for themselves, a life where they can love each other openly. 
somewhere far away from the Collins farm. Love happens as a way of 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 saying we were not going to allow this institution to make us into what it believed us to be beasts that wherever possible we were going to assert that we were human beings and how do we differentiate ourselves from all other creatures as human beings we love as human beings we imagine and those two themes are very much part and parcel of the craft story they loved each other and they imagined, they imagined a better future for themselves and for the children that they hadn't even had yet. They imagined a family. They imagined a happy home. So to assert love, to assert imagination, these are human impulses. But for William and Ellen, time isn't on their side. They have to savor every moment because it could always be the last. The worst aspect of enslavement, the crafts and other black people said, was the possibility, the uncertainty that loomed every day, every minute, every hour, every second, that you might be separated from people that you loved. And not only that, but in an instant, without any prior warning, sometimes without even the ability to say goodbye, you would be separated from people that you loved. So William and Ellen come up with a plan. It means escaping everything they knew. They both were dreamers. They had to be. Because they had to have an idea of something better than the lives they lived in order to pursue it. But there are two kinds of dreamers. The dreamers that dream and the dreamers that dream and then act on the dream. But an act like this couldn't happen overnight. It would take patience and precision. Ellen's owner was an investor in the railroad. She would have likely heard as she was waiting on her master and mistress at dinner time and at other meals, they would have been discussing the railroad. She would very likely have accompanied her mistress to the rail station on many occasions to meet friends, to drop off family members. For Ellen and William, the American railroads are the only sure way out of Georgia. William and Ellen Craft would have been very familiar with the railroads, and it wouldn't have been a hard sell to them to get out. The conundrum was how to get on those trains without being seen. So Ellen and William start planning their escape. To get on a train and travel as far away as possible from the Collins farm. Ellen was fair-skinned enough that she could pass as white. That was something that could work in their favor. That was the ticket. She would disguise herself as a gentleman Southern planter, and her husband, William, who also was mixed race, but who looked like an African man, would come along and be her enslaved person. And that's how they would get out. In order to pass as a white man, Ellen needs to change everything about the way she looks. 
Ellen was a seamstress. She very likely sewed some of her own clothes. Um, William did purchase some of those articles without being uh, noticed, without calling attention to himself. But they put together their outfits. And what was very fortuitous was that because Ellen was in a way, one of the family and very valued to the family, she did have a little room in the house. And so she was able to keep those articles hidden in her room. Over time, Ellen's secret stash of men's clothing grew and grew. That growing collection of fabric would soon become her ticket to freedom. They've made a decision that she's going to pretend that she's sick and she will wrap her face in bandages because she doesn't have facial hair. And this is an era where uh, men had facial hair. That was the style. No one expects someone with a bandaged face to talk much. After a year of planning, the day finally comes. In her small room, Ellen cuts her hair in secret and puts on a pair of dark green glasses to hide her eyes. It's the early hours of the morning, before anyone else is awake. Ellen meets William outside, and their journey begins. She's wearing a very fancy beaver cap, which would have been a mark of wealth and respectability. The two get on board a train out of Georgia and head north. As far as anyone else knows, William is Ellen's slave, and so they have to separate. William and Ellen Craft likely would no longer be able to be together. He would have been expected to go back to one of the cars where enslaved men and women remained until the ride was over and they could rejoin their owners. It was not appropriate for him to travel in the same car as she did. There are stop-offs and new trains to catch. Every step of this journey is more dangerous than the last. Unlike the Haydens, William and Ellen Craft don't have a white abolitionist who is willing to help them along the way. They are doing this all by themselves. But once in a while, Ellen and William meet each other's eyes. They remind themselves why they're taking this huge risk in the first place. When William was helping his quote-unquote so-called master with the bags, when he was helping his master with the cloak, when he was bringing his master blankets, I would like to believe that they whispered loving words to each other and supporting words. We can do this. We're going to make it. We're going to get out. Hold up. Only a day more. That sort of thing. The train pulls into Philadelphia. They've made it to the north, but their troubles are far from over. Ellen is sitting in the passenger car, trying to keep a low profile, and this older woman with two young daughters, early 20s, sits next to her, and they start a conversation. And it's clear that these young ladies are looking for a husband. (laughs) It's clear that their mother wants them to marry well as well. And the male version of Ellen? He's caught their eye. Ellen's done a very good job of 
of conveying a, a haughtiness that goes along with wealth. She looks like she has money, and these young ladies start flirting with her. <laughs> and Ellen is thinking to herself, as we know in her narrative, only they knew who they really were talking to. They're talking to a woman, and they're talking to a black woman on top of that. Ellen nods along to the conversation, but she's not giving them much else. She knows she has to be careful. This could go real wrong, real quick. She tries to be as circumspect and as polite, but as, as cold-shouldered as she possibly can, and these young ladies and their mother get the message. Whew, that was a close one. It's another moment that's, I think, unanticipated by both William and Ellen, that she seems to be a catch for these two women and their mother. Ellen looks out of the train window and avoids any more eye contact. She focuses on her bond with William, a bond that was going to get them to freedom. Love can keep us focused on not where we are, but where we will be, and that we will be together. I think that was the essence of their love at this moment, that they would be together, that they were taking these great risks to be together, and they had no choice but to succeed in order to be together. After what feels like a lifetime of traveling, William and Ellen find themselves in Boston. Boston is the place to be if you are an abolitionist, if you are a fugitive from slavery, if you are an American who wants to play a role in defeating Southern slavery, because by the 1840s and 1850s, Boston is considered the center. It is ground zero for the anti-slavery movement. Finally, William and Ellen can look around and find people who will welcome them with open arms, people who had also made similar escapes out of slavery. By the 1840s, the community of African-Americans in Boston numbered a little over 2,000. And most of them were concentrated in that area in and around Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill, the home of none other than the Hayden family. Their house was a safe house for African-Americans who were escaping slavery. The House of Love somewhere that William and Ellen could rest their weary souls in peace. When the Haydens hear that the Crafts have arrived in Beacon Hill, they know that this is a couple that they could help. Lewis sat down with William and talked with William about what his skills were and what his desires were to have a trade. What could he do in the context of jobs that were available in Boston? What could he do to support his family? The Haydens help William and Ellen Kraft find the opportunity to work, to tell their stories, and to be heard. One of the most immediate ways that enslaved people could make a living after they escaped was by telling their stories publicly. Both William and Ellen stand together in the public square and share what they had been through. Black and white folks alike stopped to listen and pay to hear the Kraft's story. For so long, they'd been silenced. But now, 
they were beginning to reclaim their voice. And they would raise money that way. They would take part of the uh, proceeds from admission back to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, and they would give part of the proceeds for admission to the anti-slavery society or group that had sponsored them. But even in Boston, most Black folks know that they were wanted people. And one day, there's a loud knock on the door of the House of Love. Two men, sent by Ellen Craft's master. They found them. More after the break. Throughout the 19th century, there was a network of men working as kidnappers. These kidnappers, or slave catchers, were paid to take enslaved people back into the horrors they had escaped. In fact, one way you knew that you were in Boston's Black community was that the walls of businesses, fences, would be dotted with broadsides or posters reminding African Americans to be on the lookout for people who didn't belong because they possibly might be slave catchers. William and Ellen Craft were both very aware that they would probably be followed. Ellen's owner, Robert Collins, actually is, is beyond the pale, incensed that he has lost Ellen and probably humiliated because of the way in which Ellen has escaped on top of that. And so he immediately commissions two Macon jailers to go up to Boston and retrieve both of the crafts. And because enslaved people are seen as property, the Collins are technically within their right to do this, employ two criminals to bring Ellen and William back to Georgia. Their names are Hughes and Knight. They find their way to Boston. Hughes and Knight are running around from door to door, knocking literally on the doors of all the important abolitionists, saying who they are and demanding that the crafts be turned over. But like the tight-knit community they are, no one in Beacon Hill says anything. But still, they find their way to the Hayden house and start banging on the door. William and Ellen are inside. They know that if Hughes and Knight find them, any chance of happiness is over. But Lewis Hayden is not about to let them into his house. Hayden, it is alleged, stands in front of the house and says, look, you can come in, but you're going to have to go through me and the dynamite in my basement to do it. <laughs> if you try to come in, I am going to blow up this house and this entire block and maybe part of the city to kingdom come. Because that's how strongly I feel about slavery being an odious institution. Lewis Hayden was a badass. Under no circumstances am I going to let you get your hands on William and Ellen Craft. And they don't. Within two weeks of arriving in Boston, faced with Hayden's iron resolve, Hughes and Knight returned to Georgia empty-handed. They go back 
to the South in defeat. They say, we can't, we can't break that line. We cannot break that line. And that's because in the house of love and for the people that live there, you are well taken care of. It's a beautiful story because it shows a community that has mobilized to support the crafts. White and Black, free and fugitive, they are not going to let William and Ellen Craft be taken back into slavery. It's easy to remember slavery as a time of pain and trauma, and there's no doubt that's true. But fueling the abolitionist movement are human beings with dreams, hopes, and desires. Mothers, fathers, children, and couples. Couples like Harriet and Lewis Hayden. And it was on Southwark Street, in the front room of the Haydens' home, where William and Ellen Craft get to do something they've longed for since the beginning, a proper wedding. They were devout Christian people, and they wanted to have a church wedding, and they knew that that was foreclosed to them in slavery. Enslaved people could not get married. The Hayden House is also significant to the Crafts because during this moment when the Crafts were really literally being besieged by these two jailers, they get married. The Crafts are literally being hunted by two men hoping to bring them back to the Collins family and back into slavery. But within the walls of the Hayden household, there was nothing but love and protection. The timing of their marriage in November 1851, when Hughes and Knight are running around the city looking for them, is a way of, again, asserting, we are here as human beings who love each other, and we are here in an understanding that we have a right to love each other as free people, and you are not going to stop us. It's not exactly a church wedding, but on that day, at 66 Southwark Street, everyone puts on their Sunday best, and it's a beautiful service. William and Ellen finally achieve their dream of marrying in freedom, but it's a moment in which they make a political statement once again, and I think that is a thread throughout their love story that their love for each other is intertwined with the politics of anti-slavery because literally at the end of that ceremony, William stands there and says, I am willing to defend myself and my family to the death because I want to be free and I want my family to be free. These were people that loved each other and loved mankind and worked to ensure that all of mankind got the freedom that they got. That's historian Kelly Carter-Jackson again. I think this is a story that is born in grief and trauma, but at the end of their lives, you get to see how together they have overcome, how together they found comfort in one another, how together they maintained their own family unit despite all of the odds, despite all of the laws. A poem for my ancestors. Remember that poem we shared with you right at the beginning? 
Love is fuel, is spark, an engine, an impetus that urges, a sinew that binds one to the other. The poet, Peggy Priestley, is the great-great-granddaughter of none other than William and Ellen Craft. Cautiously, they stepped out under midnight moonlight, hands held only briefly, featherweight against an unknown battle. William, moving in his travel shadow, his love hidden like a secret. Peggy's writing isn't just about love, and it isn't just about the search for freedom. It's also a poem about her family. Their departure was always destined for reunion. In all the places where breath and love would find full blossom at last. At Boston's Hayden House, with the celebration of a true marriage to sustain and bind them, despite the slave hunters who persisted and pursued. Peggy's poem is a reminder of what makes the House of Love so special. This is a story that shows us love can bring freedom and protection, joy, and most importantly, hope. Is there not hope then, even for all of us? I'm Tay Diggs, and this has been You Had Me at Hello. If you have an incredible love story, please reach out to us at lovestories at sonymusic.com. We would love to hear it. You Had Me at Hello is a Sony Music Entertainment production. It's hosted by me, Tay Diggs. This episode was produced by Olivia Cope. The series producer is Martha Miller. The production coordinators are E.K. Agbatolo and Lily Hambly. Kat Moran is the production manager. It was written by Nicole Perkins and the production team. Alciona Mick composed the original music. Scoring and sound design by Tom Drew. Isis Thompson, Louisa Field, and Tay Diggs are the executive producers. Special thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, Julia Stevenson, and Karen Lancini.